thank you that we can praise your name, Father, because of the work of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you for your work in our lives. Spirit of God, we thank you that you are here with us, you are in us. And as we turn our attention to your word, we ask that you'd be with us. We thank you for Marcio and Eleni and their family. We thank you so much for not only granting Marcio ordination in Brazil with the Presbyterian, but now here in Canada with the Baptists and uh, with our movement of churches, the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches. We thank you for that. God, may you continue to bless him and walk with him. And now, God, be with us. We need you. Spirit of God, may you open our eyes to your truth, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. There are several junctures in the book of Acts that I think are critical. Often as we've gone through Acts looking at the role of God's spirit in our lives, I think that's something that's been very important to us. You see moments of fellowship again, evangelism, things that we should be thinking through well. But when we came to last week around engaging our culture, uh, and I know some of you weren't here, I'd encourage you to go back online and listen to that sermon. And the difference between Paul's evangelistic strategy, the Apostle Paul's, from Acts 14 back to Acts 13 and why there's a difference, I think that, that's critical. And then I think these next two sermons are, are essential. Um, I, I preached through Acts years ago, I don't know, 15 years ago. And these two passages, or this passage in Acts 15, wasn't nearly in my mind as critical as it is today. I've been at this church for 27 and a half years as a pastor, 28 and a half years in total. I was here for a, 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 as a year before I pastored as a volunteer here. And uh, when I started pastoring here, I can say this without any hesitation. Most of the people who would come to our church to check us out from other churches were shifting from one church to another because of issues they had with the church philosophically. So they disagreed with the way they were handling a situation. They didn't appreciate the church's focus in an area. They didn't like what they were doing, maybe with whatever it would be, you name it, men's ministry, children's ministry. And it was predominantly around philosophy. They wished the church that they were a part of was more engaged with the marginalized. Maybe that's why people came to us years ago. And so they would come and say, we're differing in our philosophy of the church we're coming from. We're more aligned with your philosophy. And it wasn't often that people came here saying, we're in doctrinal dispute with the church we're coming out of. But that day has changed. That day has changed drastically. The issues of doctrinal dispute between churches is high. In fact, I've never seen it as magnified. And so I'm going to take the next two weeks and talk about what that looks like and how we navigate it through Acts 15. Because some people will throw out this, unity is paramount. That's not true in Scripture. It's not true. Doctrine is paramount. Unity is based on doctrine. Why don't we consider the Christadelphians, the Mormons, the Jehovah Witness, others I could name, as part of our Christian culture? It's because of doctrine. It's because of what we believe. Our unity is based on something. And our unity is based on a common belief system. Now in that, of course, there is room for negotiation. I'm going to talk about this extensively next week. Um, today I want to more exegete Acts 15 as we walk through it. 
But let me list just a few things. So the one is universalism. 30 years ago, when I was in Bible college and then starting into ministry, people would say, well, I, I believe that if they were a universalist, I believe a Muslim, a devout Muslim is saved by being a devout Muslim or devout Hindu by being a devout Hindu. And there would be a big debate, and people would call those people universalists. And we would say that's outside of what God has said. There's been a huge shift lately. And one of the big shifts has been people are now saying, well, I believe that the accomplished work of Christ is enough that it saves everyone, that you don't actually have to know Jesus to be saved, that a, that a Muslim, whether they're devout or not, it's got nothing to do with them being a Muslim, how devout or non-devout they are, that they're simply saved because of the accomplished work of Christ. But that's not at all what the Bible indicates. That's not what it teaches. I was at a meeting five years ago or so, and in the meeting with Christian leaders, right, I was asked about what I thought about other faiths. And so I walked through several passages of the Old Testament around different perspectives of other faiths, and I talked about how the prophets were very clear that these are false gods, and it's entirely demonic. The Muslim faith is demonic. The Hindu faith is demonic. The Sikh faith is demonic. Scientology is demonic. All of it. Every worldview except Christianity is demonic. It's from Satan. Now, if you're agonizing with what I'm saying right now, right at the very beginning, you've got to bring this back to the Word of God. Because it's clear in black and white all through the Bible. So with that being the case, if the only way is through Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life, what do we do? So in that meeting, people were furious with me. Like furious. These are other Christian leaders from across Hamilton. Furious with me. And we got into quite a conversation about this. So I get a call the next day and I'm told that I need to go back and apologize. So I never lost my temper. I never got upset. I walked through the Bible. I explained what I taught. They got upset with me. And this is what I was told. I have traumatized the room. I had traumatized the room. And this was the language used. And victimized people. I'm like, what? And, and they said, yeah, people no longer feel it's safe to be around you with those beliefs. I'm like, all right. So then they don't, I said, I said to the guy on the phone, so you're saying they don't feel safe around, around God because these are his beliefs that I think I'm teaching. So I said to the guy on the phone, I said, did I say anything that was inaccurate theologically? He said, no. I said, did I say anything in a tone that you felt was, was inappropriate? Was I angry? He said, you were passionate, but you were not angry at any, at any state. I said, okay. So if I didn't say anything wrong theologically, and I didn't say it in a tone that was sinful, but I was passionate, we have a problem here. Because you're calling these Christian leaders from other churches. And he said, well, Dwayne, like, unless you're willing to come and like, apologize, and like, I don't know if we can have you back. I said, I don't think I ever want to come back. We are in a new day. So then recently, I've been in this conversation so many times. I've been in conversation with so many who are saying, well, Dwayne, you know, I, I don't believe what they're believing, but I believe this is the word. Are you ready? I believe they're believing it, these other Christians, so sincerely. They're believing it so sincerely that it makes it okay. I'm like, so when is sincerity, when is sincerity the gauge for doctrine? I hold it sincerity. You know, the Jehovah Witnesses hold what they hold sincerely, right? The Mormons hold what they hold sincerely. I mean, I don't know if you ever read Dynamics. I, I, when I was 18 and 19, I got into 
of I got into. I got reading. I love reading about cults. I believe reading prime sources are important. I mean, I've read the Quran a couple of times. I've read through uh, uh, Dianetics, which is Scientology. I've read through multiple Hindu writings, multiple Sikh writings. I've been to Sikh temples, to Hindu temples, to Harry Krishna temples, to the mosque. I mean, I was going out uh, 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 for coffee with a local imam every six weeks for a number of years because, because I'm, I, I believe learning from the prime sources is critical. I don't want to just read what other Christians have said about something. Let's read what they have said, what they have talked about, what, what they believe. But all of a sudden today, if a Christian holds something sincerely, it, it must be true. This boils down to a number of issues. So, so when, it, when it comes to, to, to this, it's not only about what we doctrinal belief, but it's also about doctrinal behavior. Right? So sometimes there's a shift in doctrinal belief, but sometimes there's a shift in doctrinal behavior. So this comes down to issues of the affirming church and how we navigate all of this. And the last few weeks has come to issues of sanctity of life with Roe versus Wade. I'll, I'm going to dive into that one next week. I don't know if you read the editorial in The Spectator yesterday, which was in the editorial of, I believe, the Toronto Star, Globe Mail, it was a number of them. And in it, it said this. It said that if you are pro-life... You are non-thinking, hate-filled, and your views should no longer be tolerated. That there's no room for our voice any longer in public discourse is what it said. If you're pro-life. Is that not incredible? That is what's happening. And here's what's more disturbing. In the last number of weeks with Roe versus Wade, as I've talked to a number of Christians, they're shifting on this issue. They're shifting on the issue of the sanctity of life. Because of culture. They're shifting on the affirming issue because of culture. In fact, let me push this further. I've been in numbers of conversations with believers who are talking about the validity of polyamorous relationships. Meaning multiple partners. And how it should be allowed. And why it should be okay. In fact, I had a wedding in Delhi yesterday. Uh, and I was driving home and I was, I was talking to a friend and he was talking about it. Right, about how there should be this shift. And then I stopped at my parents on the way home uh, from, the, you know, they're in Caledonia on the way home from Delhi. And I was just there for a few minutes, and my dad said to me about a whole other issue. He looked at me, my dad's 76, he turned 76 on Friday. He said, What's happened to our world? That's what my dad said. Dwayne, what's happened to our world? What's gone on? And what happens is it's easy for us to be dragged along with the world. It's easy for us to be dragged along with their belief system, what they think. But it's not new to Christianity. This has happened for thousands of years. In fact, it happened in the book of Acts. And in Acts 15, a council is called to deal with a shift to try to explain what's going on. So if you have our Bibles, Acts 15 will be there last week. Sorry, not last week. We'll be there this week and next week. This week and next week. Verse 1. So certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. They were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some of the other believers to go up to Jerusalem and to see the apostles and the elders about this question. The church set them on their way as they had traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, and they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. 
when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. I'll just pause there for a moment. So Luke says certain people are coming down from Judea to Antioch and they're teaching everyone you need to be circumcised according to the law of Moses to be saved. In fact, again, there they're called uh, certain people. In verse 5, they're called believers. They belong to the party of the Pharisees. And they say two things. Gentiles must be circumcised and they must keep the law of Moses to be saved. So why, why is this? Why is this happening? Well, let me give a few thoughts. One is this. Um, as this is occurring, uh, a large group of Jews had been saved first. So on the day of Pentecost, it's predominantly Jews that have been saved. Through the first 11 chapters of Acts, it's predominantly Jews who have been saved, with some God-fearing Greeks. And now we're at a point in Acts where a whole number of Gentiles have come to faith in Christ. And everybody's asking the question, so what do we do with the Gentiles? Because the Gentiles are uncircumcised. The Gentiles don't know the law of Moses. The Gentiles aren't following the law of Moses. You see, the Jewish believers were now going to the synagogue on Saturday and worshiping on the Lord's Day on Sunday. But you see this all through Acts. They're gathering uh, the God-fearing Greeks and the Jewish people on Saturday at the synagogue. And now they're understanding when they're hearing the law read that all of this is about the Messiah Jesus. So they're not throwing out the law. They're believing the law. But they're still applying the law still to themselves. They're still living out the law. Does that make sense? Because at this point in time, what do we have? We have the Old Testament. I would argue that likely the only two books of the Bible that are written at this point in time, because the Jerusalem Council is probably 49 or 50 AD, are James. I believe James is the first epistle written. And Galatians. I'll explain that in a minute. Because I believe Galatians was written prior to the council, not after the council for a variety of reasons, though it's highly debatable. So I believe if they, have, if they have two books of the Bible, it's only those two. In the next decade, three of the Gospels will be written, right, between 50 and 64 AD, next 15 years. John's written later, right? John's written much later, probably 80 AD, on the island of Patmos. But all they have is the Old Testament. So do you understand what's going on here? All these Gentiles are being saved. All they have is the Old Testament, and they're saying, God has spoken. His people got to be circumcised. Snip the Gentiles. Right? No anesthetic. And so, well, or whatever they would have for anesthetic, but it wouldn't have been suitable by any measure or any means. It would have just been painful. So, they're saying they've got to do that, and they've got to obey the law of Moses. And you see, we understand how to interpret things because we have the full canon of Scripture, and we're interpreting things through books like Hebrews and Romans and Galatians. But Galatians, even if it had been written, which is what I would espouse, wasn't widely circulated yet. It probably only been circulated amongst the churches in, in the area of Galatia. And so because of that, lots of people at this point in time hadn't heard what Paul and Barnabas had been teaching. And so Paul and Barnabas were like, whoa, this is a gospel-centered issue. Because you're saying for them to be saved, they have to do something else. They have to be circumcised. And so you can understand the problem. Jews firstly are saved, then Gentiles, large group of Jews. We're probably talking 20 or more thousand now at this point in time 
in church history have come to faith in Christ. Now a large group of Gentiles. A few, at first it's a trickling in. But it's affecting all kinds of things as Jew and Gentiles remain together. Because they're divided on the issue, they don't want to celebrate the Lord's table. Because you shouldn't celebrate the Lord's table if you're divided. That's over a meal. So now there's all kinds of infighting. It's not only affecting how they think, it's affecting how they fellowship. Are you following me? And so it's affecting everyday life. It's affecting how they're interacting with each other. This is happening in our day today. I mean, many of you know, and I'll talk about this at length, but like that we've struggled in our relationship with True City, and I helped form it. I mean, a couple of summers ago when I was brought to have meetings with three people that are leading True City now, and at one point one of the guys said on the phone, who's now aligned with us on this, totally aligned, and he, and he said, Dwayne, I don't know how you can leave it so easily. I said, easily? I said, I said, no one except Dave Witt in the early years poured their life into this movement more than I did. No one. No one gave more money than our church did. No one poured more energy than our church. I mean, at the previous conferences, if we went and there were 500 people, 100 were from here. 80 to 100, easily. And yet we're in a new day with how we align things. On, on Thursday, we had a meeting here across the city. So 100 leaders from across the city gathered here from a variety of traditions, including a whole bunch of the true city churches. And, and we highlighted the ethnic church, the ethnic and immigrant churches. We had five ethnic and immigrant pastors highlighted. And one of them, Tommy Sue, who uh, is part of the Alliance denomination, he said, I've never experienced anything. I've never been in a room where, where we've been highlighted before. But I can tell you, none of those people will join true city anymore because of where true city's landed on a whole number of issues. And so this becomes important day to day. These are friends of mine. I would even say these are fellow believers. I'll explain this next week as we look at doctrine and categories of doctrine. And I've read two books on heresy and historical creeds and how they were formulated, how the believers gathered and why that looks like and, and how we make some determinations. One of my heroes, Michael Hake, and I have had numerous talks about in terms of church history and how this was formed. And, and so I want to talk about things that we should be looking for. I mean, one of the things is this, is the issue you're talking about local, meaning Western, or global, meaning around the world. Is it historic, meaning that you can find it all through church history, or is it modern, meaning you can only find it today? Those are helpful things to be thinking through that I'll dive into more widely next week on a couple of issues that I'll, that I'll walk through. But here in, in Acts, the believers are like, well, we got the Bible, the Pharisaical believers, and it says be circumcised. So Paul and Barnabas are wrong. And they need to be dealt with. So here we have in Galatians 2, where some people think this is the same account. I do, but not the same timeline as others. Galatians 2, verse 4. This matter arose. Paul's talking about his defense of his apostleship and, and the Judaizers at this point. Because now at this point, they're called some false believers have infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. Then in verse 12, he says this, For before certain men came from James, he used to eat, he's talking about uh, Peter, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they arrived, Peter began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circ circumcision group. So I, I read that passage in Galatians 2 earlier on in Acts and how Peter was rebuked by Paul and what that looks like. But here, uh, what these believers are doing is they're putting apostle against each other. So they've come from Jerusalem. They're part of this Pharisaical movement. And they're saying, James sent us. 
James sent us. That's why Peter says here, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Paul says in Galatians 2, James sent them. He's saying James sent us. And because they say they're carrying apostolic authority, Peter is like, whoa, well, maybe then I should be listening to them. Right? That's what's going on here. Now, in Acts 15, 24, that we'll get to next week, in the letter that's written that James stands up and explains, it says, we have heard that some of you, that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. James says, I didn't send them, just so you know. So here's what I think happened, and you, this is debated among scholars, so you are welcome to disagree with me. So I think they are pitting one apostle against another. I believe that as they're doing that, Paul then reacts to that, and he writes the epistle of Galatians. I believe the epistle of Galatians comes prior to the council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 for a variety of reasons. Let me name three. One is this. There's no mention of the council in uh, the book of Galatians. I think that if it happened first, Paul would have cited it in Galatians, but he doesn't. Number two, I believe that because Peter comes at the Jerusalem council to consensus with James and the other apostles and Paul, that he's come to that solid belief that you don't need to be circumcised and that you don't need to be a Jew to be saved. And I don't believe he went back from that. I mean, I know he could, but that's where I stand. Number three, it talks about in uh, Galatians 2 how the other apostles authenticated Paul's apostleship and his service to the Gentiles. But I believe most of that probably happened on Paul's second trip to Jerusalem with Barnabas, which you find in Acts 11. And then I believe these people are still out there, right? So he's battling them in the Galatian churches. He's battling them around the role of the Old Testament. He's trying to explain what it means that Christ has fulfilled the law. He writes the epistle of uh, Galatians. And these men that Luke is talking about go, all right, that's it. We're done. We're going to the top. And they go to Jerusalem and this is where we find Acts 15. That they've now gone to Jerusalem to say, we're taking this to the top. And so, though it's similar, I, I, I believe that it, it follows a different chronology than some would hold to. And so that's what I think is happening here. So, verse 6, what happens? So, I lost most of you just a moment ago, so come back. The apostles and the elders met to consider the question. Right? So they, they gather. The, the, what's the question? Right? The Gentiles must be circumcised and be required to keep the law of Moses. Those two things. So after much discussion, so they discuss it. Just note that in the text. Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit or by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. So don't discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. They call a council of the apostles and elders, and they gather together, and there's discussion. So there's back and forth. There's, I mean, we don't know how long it lasted. Was this three days? Was this a week? We just know that they went back and forth discussing these things, asking God's spirit for wisdom, because all they have is the Old Testament and the spirit of God in them. Maybe James has written his epistle. I'd, I'd hold to that, actually. And I hold to an earlier writing of James than later. And I believe, as I've said, I actually believe Paul's written Galatians. 
and they're probably the only two epistles written and the only books written. Matthew was probably written just a few years after, um, and then the other gospels, three of them probably within the next 10 years after that. So Peter gets up and says, you know the vision I had. That's earlier in Acts. We went through that. You know what God has done. You know the Holy Spirit filled them. You know that there was a Gentile Pentecost, and he didn't discriminate between us and them. God has saved the Gentiles. So first there's testimony. Peter then goes on, verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors were able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the Lord Jesus, that we are saved just as they. He says, we need to preserve the gospel. It's not by obeying the law that you're saved. It's not by following all the rules of the Old Testament. It's not by taking the Levitical law and memorizing it and living it out. It's by Jesus that you're saved. So Peter explains that. So the whole assembly became silent, and now they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles. So again, more testimony. Paul and Barnabas are explaining, this is what we saw God's Spirit doing among the Gentiles. And when they finished, James speaks up. James, who at this point is taking leadership in the church. And he said, listen to me. Simon, is that not fascinating? He doesn't call him Peter. He calls him by his Jewish name. He calls him by his Jewish name. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. And the words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild. I will restore it. And the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. So James gets up as the leader of the church. After much debate, he addresses them. And he explains what they've heard through Simon using his Jewish name, and he quotes from the book of Amos. So he uses scripture to interpret scripture. That's really important. Today, everyone wants to use culture to interpret scripture. Everyone. Christians I know all over want to use culture to interpret scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. Period. That's it. Scripture has the final say. So as you understand the Bible and you're trying to come to understand an issue, let's take an issue. I've done this numbers of times at our church in the past on these issues, right? So divorce and remarriage, right? Hard one. God creates man and woman, right? Because man can't accomplish all he's been created to do on his own. God creates woman. And God establishes marriages right there in Genesis, Genesis 1. Right? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother the two will be united, they'll come together on everything, and they'll become one flesh. That's repeated again multiple times in Scripture. Jesus, Paul. But because of the hardest of their hearts, in the, uh, in later on in the Old Testament, Moses permits for a certificate of divorce. And you can read that in the book of Deuteronomy and what that looks like. And then you come to the book of Malachi where God says he hates divorce. And then you come to Jesus where Jesus says, I tell you, unless you, if you divorce for any reason except pornei, fornication, right, you've committed adultery. He doesn't use the term for adultery there. He uses the term for, for what we use for pornography, pornei, 
which is a broader term than just adultery, but it is a breaking of marriage covenant. And Jesus says, I tell you, you can't get divorced for any and every reason, but unless it's for marital unfaithfulness, if you get divorced and remarried, you are an adulterer. And all the disciples goes, whoa, then we should never get married. That's their solution to it. If the only reason you can never get divorced is because your wife, your wife has, has, has uh, fornicated on you, or your spouse has, right, if the husband has, because they, they have been unfaithful to you, that could be in a conversation with someone, right? It's not always in action, right, where you're sexually talking with someone. Um, and she you know, narrows it down so much that the disciples say, all right, we're never going to get married. That's their answer. And then Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, well, he says, actually, when it comes to this, if you're married to a non-believer, so these would have been two non-believers that got married. One of them comes to faith in Christ. And they say, well, should I leave? Because I'm now married to someone who isn't following Christ. And Paul says, no. Remain in that situation to which you were called when you were saved. He says, because you're saved, you bring a sanctifying presence into the home. Because of that sanctifying presence, your husband is holy and your children, or your spouse is holy and your children are sanctified. That doesn't mean they're saved. It means that because you are saved, when they're in your proximity, i.e., you're in the home with your family, you're sleeping with your spouse because you should, because you're married to them, you're raising your children, the Spirit of God is in you, and because of that proximity, God's favor rests upon that home. And who knows, Paul says, God may use you to save them. That's how we know when he's talking about being holy and sanctified, he's not saying be saved. So you take all that together to understand divorce or remarriage. I didn't even get to all the passages, I just named several of them. And you use the Bible to interpret the Bible. So when people come to me and say, Dwayne, I think my marriage is done. Okay, let's take a look at the Bible together. Right? I'll say, tell me why it's done. And if they say, well, my spouse has had an affair. I'm like, all right, let's look at this. I found my spouse looking at pornography. Okay, let's look at this. When they come to me and say, we've, we've fallen out of love. I'm like, all right, that's nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere. Falling out of love is not a reason for divorce. So when they come to me on that issue and say, Dwayne, we've fallen out of love. We want to get divorced. I'm like, well, if you get divorced, I don't believe you can ever be remarried biblically. Because I believe what you have is an unbiblical divorce. But to do that, you've got to take the gamut of Scripture to interpret Scripture. So the reason that here Scripture is quoted is because you use the Bible to interpret the Bible. It's an important principle. The culture should not be interpreting Scripture for us. Scripture interprets Scripture for us because God is God and what he has said is best. Do you believe that? God created us. Is that not true? Does God know what is best for us? He does. So then we have to believe if God has created us and God knows what is best for us, I'm not saying it's easy. Sometimes it's challenging because the Bible's written over a period of a few thousand years, multiple authors with the same theme, but at different periods of history. And so you are looking at a historical analysis. You are trying to understand why different authors are saying different things in terms of is it, is it meant specific to Israel? Is it something that's granted for all time? Is it pre-law? Is it law? Is it post-law? Is it gospel? Is it epistle? And we end up wrestling through all of that in the hermeneutic. But God has spoken. Is that not good news? 
And not only has what he said, is what he said always best, it's always good. Whatever God has said is always good. Is that not great news? I'm not saying easy. That's different. I'm not saying it's always easy, but it's always good. So then James goes on, it's my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat uh, strangled, uh, from, sorry, the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. I'll get to this in a minute. Why those four? Yep. That was a great challenge in the last couple of weeks. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on the Sabbath. So let me take a step at why the four, right? So I want to say this. I don't believe that these four are still binding today. I believe this is situational in the book of Acts and how to deal in this moment as Scripture is being unveiled. So let me explain why I believe that. One, when it comes, he says, he says, abstain from food being polluted by idols. That means abstain from food where you know that that food has been, part of that food was sacrificed to animals, sacrificed to idols. So what would happen is, let's say Corinth is an example where you see this. Animal is taken. A third of it is sacrificed. A third of it goes to the priest. Um, and a third of it is given to the, to the family. Or sometimes half of it is sacrificed. Half of it is given to the priest. But if that's the case, and the priest sacrifices 300 animals in a day, he can't eat 300 half pieces of meat. So he sells them to the market. Sells them to the market. Now Christians who used to worship at the Greek goddess uh, Aphrodite's temple are now going to the market, and they're like, oh, I can't buy that. Half of that animal may have been sacrificed to an idol. So what do they do? Right? Paul talks about disputable matters. You find it in Romans and in Corinthians and how you navigate that. From chapters 8 right through to chapters 11 is all about disputable matters of 1 Corinthians. And so here Paul says, for the sake of table fellowship right now in this moment, not Paul, sorry, James, uh, says, for the sake of table fellowship and gathering together around the Lord's table, which is likely what? A meal where you're drinking wine and eating bread. It wasn't how we celebrate communion today. It was likely around meals as they celebrated this. As, as, they, as we gather for the sake of table fellowship to the Gentiles, even though you know there's nothing wrong with this, just if you could avoid meat sacrifice to idols, that would be great. And we know this can't be long-term because in Corinthians, Paul says, you know what? The principle is eat, eat away. But if causing eating that meat causes your brother or sister to stumble, don't do it. The second one is around sexual immorality because in other cultures in their day, sexual immorality was rampant, including things that we know are illegal in our culture, and they're illegal based on what? The law of Moses. And so he says, including sexual immorality, Leviticus 18, right? Where there's a variety of things there. I mean, don't have sex with your mom. And then it says in Leviticus, because she's your mom. I mean, I don't know that that really needed to be stated, but it did. Right? Don't have sex with your grandchildren. I'm like, really? But like, we think of it, but it was happening in all the cultures around them. And it was what's setting Israel apart. Like, we're like, don't have sex with your grandchildren. What's wrong? Why are the Israelites thinking this way? Because all the cultures around them were thinking this way. Don't have sex with your stepmom. Don't 
have sex with your, uh, if your dad remarries and they have kids with those kids because they're still half siblings to you. It's all listed there. Don't have sex with your wife during her menstrual cycle. It's all there in Leviticus 18. And here, because that's the only thing they have to go to, when they say avoid sexual immorality, what are they thinking? Go back to the Levitical law. Read the law. It will tell you how to live this way. Now, we know that someone that's been dealt with. Now, if you read Leviticus 18, you're going to read it and go, amen. Because no one that I know starts to say, no, it's okay to have sex with your half-sister. Right? Sorry, some of you just cringe. Like, but, 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 but in our culture, it's the way we think. In their day, it wasn't. And so sexual immorality. From, from basically the last two, meat that's strangled, the meat of strangled animals, and from blood, the whole idea there is meat that's not properly drank. Because all through Levitical law, starting actually in Genesis 9, 4, so it's pre-law, um, e eating lifeblood was forbidden by God. And then through the law, it's explained that the blood needs to be properly drained. So these are the four things. He says, listen, you might feel free in this, Gentiles, but in these four areas, we're asking you to honor the Jewish brothers and to follow the law, right? Food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, meat strangled, uh, uh, meat of strangled animals, and from blood. And then he says, you guys are all worried, You've this pharisaical group about what they believe about the law. The law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times. It's read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. They can go to the Sabbath and hear the law read. So, what happened? Three things. The gospel is preserved. The Gentiles are evangelized. And unity is safeguarded. Because unity is important. I mean, Jesus in John 17 prays for our unity. There's times when you break unity. Right? Paul calls these, this group in Galatians, false teachers. There's times when you break unity. Because the people you're dealing with are no longer holding to the same gospel that you are holding to. But note, doc doctrinal accuracy, community, and purity are paramount in their discussion. They're both concerned with doctrinal accuracy. Uh, is what we're saying right as well as community, how we fellowship with each other? And those things should be things that we don't take lightly ever. Because we live in a day where we need to discuss again how we walk through these issues. So in the issues I named earlier, where is our Council of Jerusalem today? Do you know groups of us have had this conversation lately? How do we call the Council of Jerusalem today in Canada? Who gets to be on it? How do we do this? Because there's some things we need to talk about. There's some stuff we need to work through. There's some things we're not saying eye to eye on. And they're important things. Because some people are saying, let's take the affirming issue as an example, that they can celebrate, i.e., going to a wedding for two men or two women, something that others of us are saying they need to repent of. And that's a very different gospel. Because the key to the gospel is what? All through the Bible, right? All, all, all through the gospels. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. And if someone's saying, here's a sin area, a whole area that you don't need to repent of, and the Bible's saying you do, or others are saying we can celebrate, then we have a big division in terms of an actual gospel-centered issue. Does that make sense? It's a gospel-centered issue. 
Because either you do need to repent of it, or you don't need to repent of it. Either God has said it's okay, or he has said it isn't okay. But what happens is everyone says, well, the narrative, the culture, like, no, 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 stop. The Bible. The Bible. I offered to meet with some people who are wrestling through something. Really, these are Christian leaders. And said, why don't we meet and talk? I'm not exaggerating. This is exactly what I was told. Through a third party who was trying to navigate the meeting. They said, Dwayne, they're willing to meet with you if you're willing to come and not use the Bible. These are Christian leaders with master's degrees or doctorates in Bible. They're willing to meet with me if I'm willing to come and not use the Bible. That's the negotiation. When we first met with True City to navigate this issue, and we had three meetings. The rules of engagement for the first meeting were that we couldn't use the Bible. This is a different story. This is a few years ago. The rules of engagement for the first meeting was we couldn't use the Bible. And we were to do two things. Talk about how you're feeling and talk about a story that you knew of someone that was wrestling with the issue, the affirming issue. Those were the guidelines. So we got to me and they said, how are you feeling? And I said, I'm feeling angry. I said, I'd like to say it's righteous anger, but some of you may disagree with me. And they would say, why are you feeling angry? And I said, I'm feeling angry because... Because we're sitting here, and the only reason we're sitting here, the only reason we're sitting here is because God has spoken. Because God has spoken. And you've told us today that he must remain silent. That he's not welcome in this room. That he's not allowed to be here. You've told us today to leave our Bibles at home and to come without him. When the only reason we're even having this conversation is because God has spoken. That's nice, Dwayne. And we went on to the next person. Now, the next meeting, we were allowed to use our Bibles. And then the third meeting, we had to hold a little stick to talk because I talked too much at the second meeting. It's fine. It's fine. Just second meeting, we were allowed to use our Bibles. They're like, okay, Dwayne, are you done? I said, I'm not done. There's more passages. I'm nowhere near done. And I just, when it got to my turn, I'm like, all right, let's start Genesis. Let's walk through. Let me explain what I believe and why. If we're using the Bible, I'm all in because this is why we, listen. We, we need Jerusalem councils today, don't we? Surely I'm not the only one feeling this tension. I realize I may sense it at a heightened level because of my engagement with Christian leaders all around. I understand that. But I'll tell you, it's everywhere. It's with our friends, it's with our family. I mean, I mean, I've had so many people come to me and say, well, we won't even talk about these issues anymore. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about them sensitively. I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about them uh, 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 well, I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about them and, and with a listening posture. Oh, I need to listen and hear what other people are saying. This is, I got I to gotta close up here, and I'll get to the rest next week. This is what people are saying today. They're saying, we're going to use the Jerusalem Council as our proof text. And here's what they're saying. Just like the Jerusalem Council came to a decision that was outside of the then revealed word of God because God's spirit was leading them, so we can today. So on all these issues I'm talking about, they're saying, although the Bible may speak against these issues, we can, by God's Spirit, be led 
outside of what the Bible is taught, just like the Jerusalem Council was, to come to a new conclusion on an issue that's differing from what the Bible said. That's basically the premise of Matthew Vine's book, God and the Gay Christian. And, and multiple books written academically since then. His wasn't, ah, it's, it's okay, but, but not overly academic. And what's happened? Is that true? No, it's not true. Why? Who gathered at the Council of Jerusalem? The apostles. What were they doing? They were being used by God's Spirit to write the inerrant word of God. It's entirely different. The canon wasn't closed at that time. The canon is closed at this time. And the canon has been closed for thousands of years. Almost 2,000 years. It's entirely, completely, utterly different. I've said this so many times. The Spirit of God will never lead someone where the Word of God cannot take someone. If they think He does, He's not. And they've lied to themselves. And the Spirit of God is not in them. That's it. Because God's Spirit will never lead you where the Word of God cannot take you. Because He loves His Word. Just so you guys can come up. And so what happens today? Well, one, we need to identify the issues. Two, we do, need, we do need to discuss them. I mean, even three weeks ago, I met with some of the leaders again of True City about these issues. I mean, this has been a long dialogue. I have met with various iterations of the leadership team over the last number of years on this issue, probably five iterations, multiple meetings. I don't know if I spent, without exaggeration, 100 hours on it, 150 hours on it, more, because... I love these people because I love these churches because I believe more importantly than any of that that what God has said is what's best for humanity and what he has said is always good. But that doesn't make it easy. It does make it hard. But thanks be to God that his spirit is in us. Is that not good news? That he's granted us the full canon of scripture. Is that not great news? I'm not saying it's always easy to understand, but his spirit guides us in the understanding of his very word. He's not left us in the dark. Next week I'm going to talk about four categories of scripture. Formation of historic creeds that I worked through the end of Acts 15. How we might be able to formulate some of these things today in our understanding of what it looks like. And can I tell you we're in a day where we need this desperately. The other thing I'm going to say as I close is, man, some of us were there for the conference at West Highland. And we just loved Andre Schutten. He's a lawyer. He's a godly guy. He loves Jesus. And he navigates our culture like, never, like, like no one I've met. And he's going to be here next Wednesday. We're bringing him from Ottawa. He's going to spend lunch with the staff to talk about how we navigate some of these issues in terms of ministry. He's going to spend time with some of our leaders over dinner. And he's going to talk about what we should do with our, um, our, all of our documents around how to make sure that they're the strongest they can be in terms of of where we're at in our culture right now. He's going to come that night and talk. I mean, I want him to address what we think about, about this new superior court ruling. That people who are now uh, intoxicated, I can't remember the name that they used, to the level where they don't know what they're doing, that they're no longer going to be held responsible for what they've done while they're intoxicated at that level. What, if, what is happening in our culture? Because as a church, in, in no way, there's two things that are true, right? Well, there's more than two, but these two for sure right now, the opposed to the servant one. God is God and he has spoken and what he has said is good. We need to navigate our day as best we can. And I'll say three. I said two, but I got a third. And wherever it's an issue of disputable matter or of sound doctrine, unity is paramount. And it should be followed because these are brothers and sisters in Christ. Will you pray with me?
God, we are thankful that you are our God and we are your children and we confess and admit that we live in a difficult day where so often and so easily we are persuaded by our culture. We are persuaded by what the culture is saying, by where it is heading, by where it is moving, instead of by your spirit, spirit of God, you are in us. If we're your children today, those of us that know and love you, you are in us, we thank you for that. So spirit of God, may you guide us around what you have said in your word. Maybe, maybe we more persuaded by your word, though at times it be hard and challenging to understand hermeneutically. May we be more persuaded by your word and the digging into it than we ever are by our culture. Because God, we believe that you are good and everything that you have said is good and is for the flourishing of humanity. And we believe this, God, because of your love for us. Jesus, we thank you that you came. We thank you that you lived. We thank you that you never sinned. We thank you that you died and you did so for us. And we thank you that any God that would do that for us would never harm us, but rather grant us life in abundance. So God, help us to believe that to the core of our being. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.